This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the New Books Network in Chinese Studies. My name is Yijian, one of your channel hosts. Today, we are very delighted to have Dr. Di Luo with us on air to discuss her new monograph titled Beyond Citizenship, Literacy and Personhood in Everyday China, 1900-1945, which was published by Brio in 2022. Dr. Luo is an assistant professor in the history department at the University of Alabama. Her research interests include modern Chinese history, the history of everyday life, history of information management, comparative literacy studies, and war and society. The book we'll discuss today, Beyond Citizenship, delves into the complex world of short-term literacy programs for young people and adults sponsored by the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party during the first half of the 20th century, a crucial period in Chinese history. The book highlights the ways in which state sponsors, administrators, educational reformers, educators, and adult students shaped the meaning of literacy training through their relationship with other members of society and the different social groups. Dr. Luo challenges the conventional nation-building modernization narrative of literacy by examining the diverse roles that literacy education played in social positioning. Through a detailed analysis of Kuomintang and CCP's literacy programs, the book demonstrates how the experiences and outcomes of these programs were shaped by the political agendas of respective parties and the context-dependent perspectives of literacy held by the Chinese people. Furthermore, by moving beyond the citizenship framework and examining the multilateral negotiations among members of society, Dr. Luo provides the audience with a fresh perspective on the relationship between state and society during China's transition from an imperial empire to a republic. Dr. Luo, welcome to our show. Thank you, E, for your kind introduction, and also it is my great pleasure to be here to talk about my book. Thank you. Congratulations on the publication of your first monograph. So uh, the first question is, what inspired you to become interested in the topic of literacy training and its impact on identity politics in early 20th century China? Oh, thank you for the question. So overall, my research interests focuses on the history of 20th century China. And one of the defining characteristics of this era uh, is the rise of modern nation state. So I have long been interested in the issue of how ordinary people, especially those in a relative disadvantaged position, experience the expansion of state power in everyday life during this period. And adult literacy training, uh, I consider was one meeting ground between the state and the people of the lower social sector. So in this case, those uh, refer to the illiterate people. 
So um, this adult literacy training program provides me a concrete angle to examine how ordinary Chinese experience the rise of modern nation state. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Uh, obviously, your interest in discovering the voices of ordinary Chinese people has already evolved into this comprehensive study presented in the book. So uh, from the very beginning, like in the introduction chapter and in the first chapter, you argue that um, the biases embedded in the narrative of nation building and modernization played a significant role in people's acceptance of political authorities' call for literacy training. So before we delve into the case studies of your book, could you please elaborate on like what these biases were um, and the discuss some of the ways these biases detached the narratives from the daily experience of you know the, the ordinary people and how this affected their participation in state-sponsored literacy programs. Oh, thank you for the question. So uh, what I discussed as the uh, biases embedded in the nation-building modernization narrative of literacy, I perceive it uh, existed at uh, several levels. So first of all, this narrative basically introduced one particular perspective to understand the importance of literacy. And within this perspective, literacy was considered essential for training qualified and responsible modern citizens and mass literacy was treated as a precondition to building a modern nation state. And this view, however, largely reflect the perception of Chinese culture and political leaders, including educators, reformers, social activists, and political parties in the 20th century. And secondly, I consider this narrative define uh, literacy's importance basically on the abstract collective level as an index of national power, and basically the literacy or literacy rate marked development of a country's status along a linear progression from backward to advanced. And the importance of literacy was understood out of social context and daily interactions. So this is what I define as one aspect of the biases of this narrative. Mm, I see. Fascinating. So uh, I think the chapter one of your book really highlights these, you know, the biases embedded in the nation building modernization perspective literacy. And you show like people's participatory experiences really uh, complicated the social impact of these literacy training programs, often in ways that were not necessarily intended by the party sponsors. And from the chapter two to chapter five, you use several case studies to demonstrate this point, to substantiate this point. Um, In chapter two, you discuss the changing approaches of the Kuomintang of literacy training, first in 1924 Shanghai, and then in 1926 so in its 1924 program, Kuomintang did not intend to use literacy training for, uh, as you said in your book, straightforward political indoctrination among the less educated. And the Nationalist Party used it as an opportunity to groom its selected revolutionary leaders among those middle school graduates. But just two years later, in 2096 Guangzhou, the mass literacy training 
screening program had significantly changed from its 1924 version. Uh, the 1926 program emphasized the party authority or partification, Danghua, as you referred to it in your book, as a main objective. So could you please explain to our audience how the shifting priorities of the nationalist government influenced these approaches and the ways in which literacy training became a multidimensional context-dependent process with all these various social implications? Yeah, oh, uh, I think to answer this question, so let me first explain what I mean by uh, literacy training as a multidimensional process with various social implications. So basically in the book, I propose a new method to study the social impact of literacy training, which I call as a holistic perspective. So what I mean by this is to examine not only how literacy training affected illiterate adults as students, as trainee, but also how the process affected its sponsors, managers, and the teachers in the sense of who they were and how they positioned themselves in the society. So this is what I mean by literacy training as a multidimensional process with various social implications. Yeah, and actually, um, the CCP's literacy program in 1924, Shanghai offered us a very good example. So uh, maybe I think it will be helpful to talk about uh, the social and historical contact for this literacy program. So what do we see uh, in 1924 Shanghai? So basically, it was the moment um, that the Communist Party and uh, the Nationalist Party just formed this political alliance, the United Front with uh, the CCP joined the GMD, the Communist Party. So what I call it as this is a form of a hybrid party, basically. <laughs> yeah. And also at that moment in Shanghai, this group, they were revolutionaries. Their activities were watched and censored by warlord regime. And also in addition, um, at that time, the mass education movement led by Yan Yangchu, also known as James Yan, had arrived in Shanghai and drawn lots of support from uh, educators, including middle school teachers and the students. So this is what I perceive as the social historical context for the GMD and the CCP when they start to collaborate on mass education in Shanghai. And when they try to formulate their program and uh, start to uh, reason the importance of the program, so clearly from their document, from the, um, the, the document issued by the party explaining the importance of mass education, it clearly showed that the party leaders uh, had in mind several communities when they start to uh, reason the importance of adult literacy training in Shanghai. So of course, the illiterate adults in Shanghai is one uh, was one of the community um, they take into consideration. But at the same time, they also uh, want to engage those well-educated individuals who cared about mass education and dedicated themselves to this cause. So party leaders hope that through sponsoring mass education, they would able to evoke sympathy towards the party from the supporters of mass education and to form um, alliance uh, with them. 
So they constantly choose not to politicize its literacy program. So in that way, so they will not differentiate the party-sponsored program from those sponsored by mass education movement led by Yan Yangchu at Shanghai. And also this approach had another pragmatic advantage because it could have the party evade censorship by warlords and thus give them opportunities to get close to the masses and develop, develop itself. And lastly, organizing adult literature training was also helpful to forge ties among members of this newly formed hybrid party. As the party leader reasoned that mass education training was the type of work that almost every party member could get involved. Through the shared work experience of teaching mass literacy rather than ideological conformity, the party members were able to develop a sense of belonging to the party as a whole. So to this purpose, once again, depoliticizing the content of literacy could be helpful as it diverted um, party members' attention from the potential debates over political messages to be delivered. Uh, instead, they can focus on teaching and running the literacy program. So that's, the, I think, the overall historical social context um, decided the priority that the party leaders t- uh, took on in designing their um, program in Shanghai. Basically, try to avoid political indoctrination and instead focus on cultivate sympathy towards the party in the broadest possible public. Yeah. And also, uh, if we move on to talk about uh, its literacy program in Guangzhou um, from 1925 to uh, 1926, we, we would uh, look at a different historical and local context. So in Guangzhou, uh, where the GMD basically able to um, gain a foothold uh, in 1917, However, they constantly uh, have a struggle against the local warlord. So eventually it was in February 1926, the GMD was able to secure military dominance in Guangzhou. And then uh, starting from July 1st, that year, 1926, um, the GMD declared a northern expedition with the goal of, uh, of ending the warlord rule and reunify the country. And by September 1926, the Northern Expedition claimed initial victory against uh, warlords in central China. So um, the GMD's literacy program in this area basically respond to this changing um, local circ- circumstance and also the changing position of the party in the local and the national um, political conditions. So we see that reflect in its literacy program uh, in the initial initiative made by the party in 1925, it include this agenda, so-called civic education in, it, in its literacy program, which is different from Shanghai. Shanghai basically, oh, we do not want to politicize our content. We just want to blend in. We want to be just uh, seemingly look like other programs organized by um, the programs of Yan Yang Chu's uh, mass education movement. But in Guangzhou, they take a more affirmative stance in terms of they want to have the literature training as part of civic education. However, in 1925, we still see the target group of its literature training was still somehow relatively limited. 
It focuses upon those individuals between the ages of fourteen and thir- and thirty. It was only in September nineteen twenty six, after its initial victory of the northern expedition to reunif- reunify China, did the nationalists start to uh, envision the illiterate across the country as the target of its literacy program, and also. It was at that moment the central leaders start to emphasizing, and also to start to install uh, legitimacy exclusively to so-called national language for literacy instruction. So prior to that point, the GMD um, their literacy program in Guangzhou promote literacy in local dialect. So in a way to win the heart of local residents to consolidate its foothold in Guangzhou. And so overall, we see this local circumstance and uh, the place of the party in national politics influence uh, is a shifting priority in literacy training. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing with us, especially your uh, elaboration on the detailed uh, social historical context of these two uh, 1920s literacy programs in Shanghai and Guangzhou. And I think you made a very clear point from the first two case studies that literacy training was not purely about reading and writing, right? Uh, rather, it was about the interaction of people involved. Uh, that's a reason the goals and the strategies of these programs changed in accordance with these changing contexts. And people employed these literacy training programs as opportunities to develop or uh, enact their relationships with different people and multiple communities. Um, yeah, so move, moving to the next chapter, chapter three, you explore the competition between the Kuomintang and the CCP in sponsoring mass education from 1928 to 1936, with each party adopting a distinctive narrative about the importance of literacy. Could you elaborate on the key differences between their respective narratives and how these uh, contrasting approaches have shaped the outcomes and the social impacts of their uh, literacy programs? Oh, thank you for the question. Uh, I, I really liked a part of this book in terms of comparing the different narrative and frameworks made by these two parties because they are so um, different uh, in terms of uh, how they frame their literacy programs in, in this period um, from uh, between 1928 and 1936. So we see uh, at that time, the Nationalist Party claimed control of the central government. And uh, in its definition about the importance of mass education, basically it uh, construed it as a part of this effort uh, for eventually obtaining constitutionalism. And in this whole process, they adopt uh, the term initially as so-called impaired citizens, bu <laughs> to describe the illiterate people in 1929, and then later in 1936, uh, used the term of so-called shishuemin-zhong, uh, unschooled masses, to describe the illiterate people. So what we see in these two terms, so basically they both describe illiteracy as a kind of personal failure. The term of impaired citizens 
So, 不健全的啊、um, 国民 basically imply that the illiterate people were incapable, incapable of becoming economic, economically、uh, productive, politically engaged, and patriotically conscious. Yeah, and the term of unschooled masses basically、uh, marked the failure of those individuals to fulfill the mandate of compulsory primary education. Right. So, in order to the the way the party,、uh, the Nationalist Party, proposed to address the failures, those personal failures, is to、uh, obtain literacy through state-sponsored short-term training programs. However, if we look at this proposal, this solution, it's quite doubtful. If we look at from the perspective of the people who participate in those training, and mo- most of the, those short-term training only last about、um, two to six months, so it's quite doubtful that those adult students would consider themselves literate after graduating from from those programs. And also, many of them actually dropped out before completing them. So if we put those、uh, things together, what we see here is the narrative promoted by the GMD basically placed illiterate adults primarily in the social relationship with the educated,、um, the literate, and this narrative basically perpetuates the image of the power hierarchy between illiterate, impaired citizens and literate, competent citizens. And the only path to change illiterate person's social position was to obtain full literacy. However, this goal was not able to be obtained through the short-term training program provided by the state. So,、uh, and also other,、um, if we look at the frameworks the Nationalist Party used after 1928 to measure to evaluate. Is a literacy effort. We see it largely relied on this quantitative measurement, including enrollment numbers and literacy rate, to present its mass education efforts. However, given the instability within and the invasions、uh, from outside, it was quite challenging for the Nationalist Party, or probably for any government, to bring about a quick and substantial increase. In the literacy rate in the 1930s and 1940s. So, in comparison, in contrast, if we look at the narrative of frameworks used by the CCP、uh, during the early 1930s, so largely the CCP presented illiteracy not as a personal failure but as a result of class exploitation. So, this perspective、uh, gave power to the action of acquiring literacy. So,、um, no matter how occasionally those action would be, those action actually create a sense of empowerment to the less educated in relation to the rich and the well educated. Why is that so? Basically, they're talking about the reason why you are illiterate because you lack of the opportunity to be educated, and therefore, once they get opportunity and actually they act out, they involve enrolled in those literacy training. So that action alone somehow are able. Is this kind of has the power to generate a sense of empowerment? So 
despite of or no matter whether those people are able to obtain literacy or not. So this is kind of what I um, say or summarize, describe as the way of uh, CCP's way of managing literacy uh, with afforded a view of empowerment to the action of learning. So regardless of whether a person become literate or not. And also this action-oriented view um, guided the CCP's narrative to focus on the stories of individuals' transformative experience. So it's different from the GMD's um, uh, focus on uh, statistics, focus on quantitative measurement. Even though the CCP also use literacy rate, etc. However, in its narrative, it also highlight those personal transformative stories. And those stories um, were able to give a compelling, cogent presentation to present the capability of the party in bringing changes to personal life and nation. So that's what we, what I um, see as the major differences in terms of the narratives and frameworks used by these two parties during the early 1930s. I see. Very interesting and inspiring to see these crucial differences between Guomindang's literacy programs and the CCP's. And basically, uh, based on your just uh, you know elaboration and the book that I'm reading, uh, though they both believed in the importance of literacy in nation building, their conceptions of how exactly literacy could help build a modern nation state were very different from each other, right? Um, and you further elaborate and demonstrate this point uh, argument in the next two chapters, which both focuses on the wartime period from 1937 to uh, 1945, right? Um, uh, so the na- uh, next chapter, chapter four, you delve into the management of literacy programs during wartime in Chongqing and the social impacts of these programs. So what were the key challenges faced by the wartime nationalist government, uh, particularly in aligning the participatory experiences with the state agenda for training the patriotic citizens? And uh, what were the multidimensional social impacts of the government provided adult literacy training during this specific time period? Yeah. So um, when I um, investigate uh, this time period, I, I really is kind of deeply um, felt the limic- limitation uh, faced by many historians. <laughs> so basically, we have to rely on archival documents to investigate past experience, right? So we don't we we cannot do ethnographic <laughs> work to see how uh, the literacy program were uh, actually implemented and uh, what world experience um, looks like for those participants. So we, we, we have to gather our knowledge from government reports that documented those activities. And my conclusion about the key challenges the nationalist government uh, faced during this time period basically um, are based on my analysis of those uh, government reports. So what I see from those documents um, uh, are the lack, lack of cohesive and a systematic implementation from um, the administrators um, to teachers and students that linked literacy training experience with patriotic commitment. 
So basically, what we see this, uh, we we can see this divergence uh, at a different level. On the policy level, so according to the Ministry of Education and also those um, policymakers, basically they present and perceive literacy training as the essential means to cultivate patriotic commitment. However, if we move down to the next level in terms of implementation, in terms of managing, and what we see there is the administrators and the teachers, when they documented the literacy program, they largely evaluate the program by enrollment numbers. So there, there were no detailed documentation about any patriotic activities in which students were supposed to participate. All they provide any evidence showing the efforts made by administrators and teachers to explore students' behavior and conceptual transformation through literacy training. So that kind of kind of divergence, uh, what I is, is speak to what I what I mean by this lack of cohesive systematic implementation that really align uh, kind of this literacy in, initiative with this patriotic commitment from from students. So. Um, and also this documentation culture in turn influenced how those administrators and the teachers implemented the meaning of their work. So um, with a focus upon statistics, enrollment number, etc., basically they shape their perspective uh, in understanding the meaning of their work largely as fulfilling the quotas assigned by their superiors. And those member, numbers, however, were not quite helpful in leading them to see the value of their work in making meaningful transformation in the people's life of those kind of trainees, those um, illiterate adults. So that's what I see as a major challenges. And in terms of the multidimensional social impact of the uh, CC, uh, sorry, the GMD sponsored adult uh, literature training during wartime, uh, I emphasize that even though the literacy program couldn't uh, to could couldn't fulfill its goal of turning uh, illiterate adults to uh, become literate or the goal of eliminating illiteracy among the general populace, those programs had their own values uh, in other areas. So first of all, what we see is the GMD in late 1937, they uh, proclaim a goal of eliminating illiteracy in China within a year. So I, I want to argue that we shouldn't consider, okay, this is a realistic or irrational <laughs> uh, kind of goal. Um, but I want to emphasize this, this short time frame, actually the party proposed, spoke to this uh, acute urgency that is sensed by many Chinese at the time. It can reflect the state's determination and rapid response in coping with the national crisis. And it therefore offered a hope that China would quickly come together as a strong nation, um, as a strong national entity, and a hope that can kind of uh, resonate it 
with those who believe in the power of literacy to produce patriot um patriotic uh, artic, uh actions and cultivate patriotism among the general populace. So in other words, the meaning of its program may not lie in the interaction or relationship between the state and the less uh, educated, but it has a meaning in the relationship between the state and uh, and those well-educated people who believe in the power of literacy training in cultivating uh, patriotic actions in cultivating citizenship. And at the same time, I also see the value of the nationalist uh, adult literature training during wartime uh, in terms of it offer a means of living, a means of livelihood for uh, teachers who follow the nationalist government and relocated to Chongqing. And so the literacy training program basically provide them a job opportunity. So those are also the areas where I see um, the impact or the social meaning of those uh, programs organized by the GMD. Thank you. Uh, it's very interesting to see, like, you know, the interpretations and experiences of uh, local administrators, teachers, and the students of these party-sponsored literacy programs were distinct from the political elites or those policymakers in, uh, of Kuomintang. And like you, as you just said, like, you know, local agents probably, they saw such programs as a means to make a living or acquire other personal gains. And though, like, you know, the Kuomintang probably cannot achieve its goal to uh, cultivate literate citizens or patriotic citizens, it could actually use this program as a, a, a means to establish a more close connections with those literate uh, elites, right? This, this is fascinating. Uh, and in the last case study, in Chapter 5, you explore the evolution of CCP's literacy programs in its northwestern Shanxi-based area during uh, uh, the same period, the same wartime period, 1937 to 1945. And you investigate how these programs impacted the social dynamics and identities in the border areas of the CCP, right? So like in the, for example, in the 1940s, the winter school program, like basically before the 1941, the CCP's goal of its literacy program was mainly to mobilize villagers national consciousness for support of the war but this goal as you demonstrated largely failed right uh, and consequently the CCP made a constant adjustments in following years so can you discuss these adjustments made by the CCP party leaders in 1941 and in 1944 in their approach to literacy training and how these changes impacted the promotion of social identity and mass lie policy among villagers. Yeah, um, thank you for the question. So actually, um, in the book, I wasn't able to um, elaborate on the kind of the, the detailed changes the party made prior to 1944, just because of uh, the limit of space. And also, I want to uh, give more attention to these more substantial changes that come in in the year of 1944. So, uh, yes, as you said, so for the uh, party member, they make assessment about their um, 
initial years of so-called winter uh, schooling, this kind of they offer this uh, literature training during winter time and try to evaluate what was considered as successful and what were um, the shortcomings are as you know, were there during um, that program. So the initial response uh, in 1941, so they're talking about they want to improve the quality of, of their uh, training program because they perceive the major shortcoming for the 1940 program was that they focused too much on um, popularizing um, the program in terms of uh, increase the accessibility to school to schooling among villagers. And actually that perception reflect uh, how the party leaders in Northwestern Shanxi also influenced by this nation building and modernization narrative, a perspective that widely spread and embraced by Chinese intellectuals, well-educated people at the time. So they basically, in, initially they believe, okay, the lack of access was the primary reason why there were so many illiterate people living in the countryside. And therefore, their program is trying to uh, improve accessibility by establishing those literacy uh, programs, training facilities, and make them accessible to villagers. And it turned out the enrollment rate or the numbers of students enrolled in the program were not um, in the way as they expected. So, and then they reason, okay, what, what was the uh, causes for this? They're talking about probably the teachers who run those programs were not um, good enough. <laughs> they are not qualified teachers. But at that moment, they evaluate what count as qualified teacher. So they largely um, consider it still based upon their educational levels. So they're talking about uh, they want to improve the quality of teacher, make sure those teacher were really aware, uh, um, have good knowledge about uh, the party policies and they know uh, how to run the program. So basically it's more talking about the pedagogy, teaching pedagogies, etc. right? So that's, that's kind of what we see as adjustment they made in 1941. So they want to to emphasizing upon quality over quantity. And we see that as kind of agenda continue into the um, 1942 and 43. Until 1944, we see substantial uh, changes, adjustment made uh, in this area. So because of, uh, in response to the mass line policy promoted by the central party, and we see this substantial trans, um, kind of reprogramming of literacy program in this area. So now they start to reevaluate what counts as a, a qualified teacher for the program. We see they move away from this, um, mainly focus upon educational level and cultural credential, etc. So they more focus upon how those teachers, winter school teachers, they were treated, viewed, or uh, how their relationship with local residents looks like. So they want to select those individuals were uh, well regarded, has a local reputation. So in that way, they consider those are good teachers. And in addition, uh, in 1944, so mainly they recruit teacher among local cadres. So basically those um, people uh, serve in this kind of leadership position already in the village, like as a village head or as leader in those mass organizations, etc. So 
there in this way they also changed uh, literacy training in 1944 as a way to transform the administrative style of those local cadres to make sure they um they will kind of solicit opinions they will willing to work with local villagers to solve local problem and to do so in their teacher training program they emphasize upon um this so called discussion centered um uh training rather than this lecture centered uh training so that remind me about what we talking about teacher centered <laughs> pedagogy <laughs> allocated in nowadays yeah so basically the winter school teacher training program they want to show how um to organize class discussions how the teachers basically serve as a facilitator in the discussion and they propose a discussion topic and they um basically moderate the conversation and they try to kind of encourage the input from um from the students so in overall their teaching experience can um become a example to show them how to implement so called the mass land policy in local in local administration and also we see substantial um change in terms of the content of training so the 1944 program um start to uh feature um introduction instructions in how to calculate taxes create production plans and also organize local cooperatives so those contents um i show argue in the in the book they really engage the social realities of those uh, villagers and those programs allow those villagers to envision new ways of how they can associate with one another and also most importantly the 1944 program they start to introduce a new social identity called as lao uh, dong um um chun zhong the the laboring people and uh, they also along with this new identity of laboring people so they also advocate this uh, idea that laboring people create the world and so basically they entitled the people um, who worked who labor to um the kind of as the source of wealth they are entitled to the produce uh, from the land so in this way they are able to create a sense of moral superiority to the laboring people vis-a-vis the leisure class and this slogan and this idea also um legitimize this rent reduction request by the renters of the land so that that's the one of the major reason why we see that is a better response from the local society to the party's um policy of land reduction in 1944 and also this laboring people create the world also further um accommodate this villagers desire of becoming rich because previously there are some concerns among villagers they worry that if they improve production and they uh, increase their income they potentially will become victim of class struggle they potentially will um have will be burdened more uh, in tax payment to the government so the whole um winter uh, schooling program in 1944 basically 
advocate this idea of laboring people created world and also uh, legitimize villagers' desire to becoming uh, to become rich. So that's overall on the 1944 program uh, enabled the villagers to represent themselves in local community to form new social ties. And so that's the reason why we see a better uh, reception among villagers towards the 1944 program. Interesting. So I think you definitely made a fantastic comparison between Kuomintang and CCP's approaches to literacy training in different time periods. Uh, And from the analysis in the book, it appears that the CCP was more successful in engaging a large number of Chinese people in their literacy programs compared to Kuomintang. You have already talked about like the, the, the crucial differences between the two parties' uh, programs, uh, their approaches and strategies. Could you uh, el- elaborate on like the factors of uh, that contributed to this situation? Uh, how did the CCP manage to be more flexible and accommodate in implementing this program, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm my current project focuses focuses on the uh, uh, PRC history. So I'm wondering, did this flexibility continue after 1949? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's very important. We see this kind of the continuity and connection um, between the history is kind of prior to 1949 and after. So, yeah, I think um, the major differences between these two parties' approach, um, I think, uh, exist in several uh, aspects. So first of all, um, as I mentioned, so the framework, the narrative utilized by the two parties were so different. So the the GMD, uh, as the leader uh, as the party control central government. So basically, they create narrative uh, talking about defining the importance of literacy, uh, mass education as a preparation for constitutionalism. And they rely on this quantitative measurement, enrollment number, and the literacy rate. And uh, so this type of quantitative scale or quantitative uh, perspective basically constrain um, the CC, uh, the GMD in terms of really give a, a persuasive presentation about their achievement in mass education just because um, the limitation at the time they are not able to show or able to really bring about a substantial increase in the literacy rate. And in comparison, the, G, uh, the CCP at the time prior to 1949, basically these, they are revolutionaries, right? They are challengers. They are uh, kind of um, in a different position in the national politics compared with the, the, the GMD. And also in the CCP's narrative, basically they foreground literacy as index of social inequality. And also... Um, they asserted that mass literacy could be achieved only after the establishment of a proletarian state attained through a CCP-led revolution. So in this way, they basically put off the task of achieving universal literacy while competing against the nationalists for national leadership. And after becoming the ruling party in 1949, 
the CCP, we see like it's pretty uh, like the GMD. They also started to use national literacy rate to evaluate its progress in mass education. So I, I feel this kind of different framework and also the narrative afforded to these two parties also conditioned by their position, their place in the overall national politics at the time. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I really want to, like, you know, figure out how, like, you know, the the peoples in localities really responded to the post nineteen forty nine literacy programs sponsored by the party state. Um, so the book really challenges a, a linear teleological transitional narrative of moving from the imperial subjects to republic citizens, and encourages understanding the experiences of Chinese people in the early 20th century as they transitioned from, you know, the, the, the imperial empire to a republic. So how does a book locate the meaning and function of literacy training in the multilateral negotiations among members of society? And what implications does this have for the way we understand literacy and citizenship in early 20th century China? Yeah. So I think I treat my book as a um, case study from this angle of adult literacy training uh, to understand uh, the state-society relations uh, in early 20th century China. And um, so far, uh, when we're talking about state-society relationship uh, in China during this time period, so largely, I think many of the uh, scholarship has been influenced by this uh, citizenship framework. And this framework, uh, I perceive, um, it focuses our attention to a singular dimension in the relationship between state and society. So although scholars have discussed the different meanings and practices of citizenship, what is missing in this picture is how members of the society relate to one another and how the state interacted with multiple social connections. So um, as I show in the book, so the process of literature training actually not only affected the relationship between the illiterate adults and the state, but also affected how illiterate adults position themselves in relation to their family members, peers, and townsmen, and how uh, teachers and administrators relate to their colleagues and other math education sponsors. So those multidimensional relations as a whole gave meanings to people's uh, participatory experiences and, and also give meanings of literacy in the social context. So in that regard, um, so what, that's what I talk, mean by this uh, multilateral negotiations among members of the society. And I argue that the state's goal were better served only when literacy training enabled students to represent position themselves favorably relative to other members of the local community. So we need to um, place this state and society relations in this multidimensional of of social interactions among social members. I see. Very inspiring. Um, So the next question is, we both historians, we care about the sources. And I see your book really relies on archives from different localities. Uh, Could you talk about the nature of these sources and how was your archive research um, and um, any any fun episodes you want to share with our audience? Yeah, of course. I think um, as a, as mentioned, so it's um, 
<laughs> my major uh, source of evidence is from uh, government archives, uh, government records, and uh, and the way I approach those government um, documents is not only treat them as um, um, source of information, right, read its contents, but also I perceive those documents as uh, practices of its producers. And I try to um, engage and envision what kind of uh, meaning those document producer can generate while they producing those documents. So that is kind of what I, um, the ways I, I analyzing those so-called culture of documentation of these two parties. And also quite interesting, we see this distinctive um, um, record-keeping practices between these two parties. And for the GMD, uh, many of the documents um, we see they feature with those uh, enrollment numbers, <laughs> statistical data. And for the CCP, somehow, especially um, in the in the case of Northwestern Shanxi, especially we see uh, after 1944, we see more detailed um, description about what was happening on the ground. This uh, they present this scenario, uh, a scene of those social interactions between teacher and students. So that's what I I, I think about as kind of uh, in terms of the way how we approach when we encounter different type of documents. How should we interpret um, the differences? What those differences can tell us. So that's what I think is kind of. Um, uh, changing a different uh, perspective, the ways we approaching the document that probably can uh, open up a new kind of horizon of research. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. And when did you do the archive research before the COVID? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How was that? <laughs> yeah, uh, because I this project is based upon dissertation, so. I benefit a lot in terms of uh, the opportunity as uh, graduate students are able to go to archive for a whole year, stay there, just uh, immerse yourself into this kind of the materials, etc. And I did just kind of go back to visit some archives afterwards, after graduation, and uh, able to just uh, kind of uh, collect additional materials, uh, etc. But yeah, I haven't been back for a while. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> many years, right? Yeah, many years. Uh, yeah, so the book is revised from your dissertation. I mean, I, I'm also a postgraduate. And, and I'm curious about the, the revising process from the dissertation to the manuscript. So any insights you want to share with me and other young scholars, like when and how to start to revise your dissertation after you officially file your dissertation? Right, and where should we contact the publishers, and how to find a suitable publisher? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think I got advice uh, from um, friends and senior um, colleagues, and uh, so they basically recommend to okay, you just uh, uh, take a break from this. <laughs> <laughs> also, 
I think we we need that time, right? So because we uh, if we uh, landed on a job or we are uh, looking for a job, we need to uh, spend more time in in other areas um, on job market and on kind of polishing our teaching, etc. And also, I think it's kind of that also be helpful in terms of mentally, so you not feel guilty <laughs> of not continue to working on dissertation while you have to be busy with other uh, responsibilities, etc. And taking a break that's also is is really uh, uh, helpful in my case because it allowed me to come back with a fresh pair of eyes and to look at um, the framework, the fundamental framework that able to tie all my cases together, to tie my argument together. So I was able to find a better framework to present my argument. And also other things, I benefit uh, greatly from interdisciplinary studies, interdisciplinary uh, perspectives, because I got lots of inspiration from a friend in linguistic anthropology, and she offered uh, me a lot of insights and also inspiration in describing and understanding the ways in which individuals uh, make sense of themselves and also how uh, one place oneself in social relations. So I feel I benefit greatly from other disciplines in terms of um, their framework, their theories, in analyzing social relations and how language and action uh, function in social interaction. So in terms of uh, finding a suitable publisher, so I think um, you can start a conversation with um, publishers uh, kind of right after it's kind of graduate. So you can just uh, talk with them and ask about whether your topic will be a good fit with, their, with the press and also get to know what the procedure and timeline looks like. So you are able to plan accordingly and also um, to find a suitable publishers. So one way is just to look at uh, the scholars in your field um, with, publish, with press they have published with. So that probably uh, is a good indicator about what would be a, a, a suitable publisher for your work. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the generous <laughs> sharing. I will, I mean, keep some distance from my dissertation and uh, find some allies in other disciplines and also probably begin to talk with uh, some publishers. So, uh, Dr. Lu, what is your next project? Oh, thank you for asking <laughs> that. So, uh, I, I would love to continue the topic of uh, literacy education and probably uh, bring it to uh, post-1949. But at this moment, I just want to take a break <laughs> okay. and, uh, and work on something different. So uh, currently, I'm working on a project uh, that uh, examines information exchange among family members, friends, and state functionaries across political borders during Second Sino-Japanese War. That's interesting. So, yeah. yeah, I want to like I would like to examine how commoners and uh, Chinese government entities maintain contact with individuals and institutions behind enemy lines and uh, also how people make sense of the nation state during a time of great chaos. And uh, so I feel that um, by answering those questions, I was able to highlight people's uh, evolving sense of who they were in relation to family, 
local community members, state and nation. So a multidimensional perspective that I carry forward from my first book project. Mm, that's interesting. I look forward to reading your uh, new research in the information management. And also I look forward to reading your uh, literature uh, program studies after the 1949. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Dr. Luo, for sh- discussing your fascinating monograph, sharing your research and insights with us today. Uh, through our discussion, I have gained a deeper understanding of the historical complexities of literacy training and its implications for citizenship and identity politics in early 20th century China. And thank you to all our audience for listening to this episode. We hope you found this discussion as enlightening and engaging as we did. For those interested in learning more, uh, we highly encourage you to get your own hard copy of Dr. Luo's book, Beyond Citizenship. We look forward to bringing you more thought-provoking conversations with scholars in the field of Chinese studies. Goodbye.